Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, if you would please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. The Roman statesman Cicero once said, Nothing is more noble, nothing more venerable than fidelity. Faithfulness and truth are the most sacred excellences and endowments of the human mind. Honesty, integrity, nobility, truth. Well, none of these come to mind as we Think about the name Judas Iscariot. He'll be forever recalled as the traitor who betrayed Jesus with a kiss. You know, <laughs> why a kiss? You know, if Judas really hated Christ this badly, why not just walk up in front of him and slap him in the face? Why, why a kiss? You know, an explanation for that is is just one of the questions that we're going to ponder as we look at Luke chapter 22. We know from previous studies that Judas loved both this world, the things of this world, and especially money, but he hated Jesus. He hated Jesus. The straw that finally broke the camel's back occurred less than a week previous to this passage. It's when Jesus permitted Mary, the sister of Lazarus, to pour out a very, a very costly bottle of perfume over Christ was her act of gratuitous worship for raising her brother Lazarus from the dead. But while witnessing that spectacle, which Judas perceived as a horrendous waste of resources, Judas arose. And he roused the other disciples into a kind of revolt, type of rebellion, just suggesting to everyone in the room that that money oh, it should have instead been given to the poor. But John 12 assures us Judas stated this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. You know, folks, that, that is often how... Spiritual darkness, the enemy infiltrates the kingdom of God. Uh, ulterior motives of darkness and masquerading around as, as uh, spirituality. He pretended to be spiritual. He pretended to be light to that room. Folks, but make no mistake, Judas had a very dark and evil heart. He was full of spiritual deadness. Scripture notifies us that Judas did not believe in Jesus, nor was he ever saved, nor did he ever become saved. As Christ confirmed at the Last Supper, this is written in Mark chapter 14, the Son of Man is to go just as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. You know, Did Judas ultimately repent? Did he receive grace that 
that he could have had available to him? Uh, Would it have been said if he had uh, that it would be better if that man were never born? Certainly not. If he were in the grace of God and in the presence of Jesus Christ, it could not be said that it would be better if he had not been born. In his high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, Jesus told his father, Not one of them has perished except the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled, that son of perdition being Judas. Uh, Which scripture was fulfilled? Well, that's Psalm 41 verse 9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he has lifted up his heel against me. That is how Scripture describes Judas. He was entirely dead on the inside. He was spiritually dead. He was doubly dead. He was so spiritually dead in his trespasses and sins that he was willing to betray the Holy Son of God for money. And after watching all that costly perfume being poured out onto the ground by Mary and then experiencing that embarrassment of Jesus rebuking him before the whole room, he he could no longer control his rage against Jesus. Scripture tells us it was then. It was then that Judas went to enter a pact with the religious authorities to betray Jesus. A pact that in a few moments is sealed with a kiss, a kiss of death. Please follow along as I read from Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. That peaceful serenity in the Garden of Gethsemane Gethsemane has now... um, just been disrupted while most of Israel is quietly sleeping. The nation is at rest. They are asleep in anticipation of the Passover tomorrow while the Passover lamb is being bound for slaughter by the temple priest tonight. Luke describes Judas as leading a crowd to Gethsemane. He's now become the front man of of a a very large crowd. A crowd which our scripture reading from the Gospel of John assures consisted of of many men, including a Roman cohort, and even as we saw their commander. Folks, that that is significant. That is very significant because a Roman cohort, or what we would refer to today as a battalion of men, at that time consisted of one-tenth of a legion. 
that would be 600 soldiers. Was was the entire cohort sent? Well, we can't know for sure, but what we do know is that their commander was sent. That's identified in the Greek as Achilliarchos, their commander. Uh, Such a man would typically be in charge of a thousand men. A thousand men. That, That in comparison... Uh, That is ten times the number that the centurion was in charge of. This is a very significant man. So, observing the fact that such a prominent military commander, a, a figure of that nature, was dispatched, in the middle of the night, no less, uh, tells us a few things. Just a few things. First, Such a distinguished leader would have never left the walls of Jerusalem, the safety of Jerusalem, in the midst of darkness to confront a band of 12 men without first considering the potential of an ambush. Passover had begun, uprising uprising against the Roman authorities. Uh, Their occupation was common. So I imagine a military figure this noteworthy Uh, He is going to, for his own safety, he's going to advance with a parade of overwhelming force. Many estimate the crowd wielding clubs and swords and weapons and lanterns and torches as exceeding 200 men sent to arrest Christ. Uh, As such, this wasn't a sneak attack, folks. It wasn't a sneak attack. Uh, it's reasonable to presume, as a matter of fact, that, that through the branches of the olive trees on the Mount of Olives, through those trees, after Jesus was done praying in, swe- in droplets, sweating droplets of blood, it's not unreasonable to presume that Jesus would have been able to see their torches and their lanterns ablaze as, as this, this posse then exited the eastern gate of Jerusalem, crossing the the Kidron Valley below, and then ascending the bank to the Garden of Gethsemane. I have a photo of what that looks like modern day. This is a picture from the Garden of Gethsemane. We're standing on the Mount of Olives from this view, looking across at uh, the gold dome there is where the temple used to stand. And what I have circled there in red is that eastern gate. That's the gate on the side. This would have been the view as 200 or more men potentially exited with torches out of that eastern gate to go after, to go down that Kidron Valley and then up the side to the garden, which we know uh, Judas Iscariot knew the location very well. He led that crowd directly to Jesus. Judas, when we consider this, he, he must have appeared quite a fanatic that night as, as he wakened the chief priests, the, the temple officers, and then to consider that he even was able to uh, muster a commander, a commander and his cohort. He, he would have needed to convince them that this trek in the middle of the night is worth your while Follow me. And the fact that they all followed Judas confirms that Jesus had become one of the most wanted men in Jerusalem. Uh, I I must underscore 
folks, organized religion, that of those priests, that of the Pharisees, it has a passion to crush Jesus on this night. He had become quite a menace in his teaching at the temple during this week. He, he had to be silenced. And the powers of darkness, the, the powers of spiritual darkness, of satanic darkness, you know, they will, they'll gladly partner with secular authorities in order to further their objective in order to suppress the one whom they deem a threat. They will later arrest the disciples. They'll command them to not preach the gospel. Soon they will kill James in a short period of time, one of the apostles. Uh, They will rejoice in gladness when they achieve that. Many will be accused of insurrection, jailed, and imprisoned in the early church. The Jews are eventually going to accuse Paul before King Agrippa. They're going to place him in front of the secular authorities as well. And ultimately it will be Caesar whom they employ to take the head of Paul. They will muzzle the voice of Christ and his gospel if they can find a way So there have arrived uh, many, many periods and many hours of darkness throughout the history of Christendom, throughout the history of the church. There have been many who have proven martyrs out of that persecution. Uh, But tonight, tonight is darkness's darkest hour. Darkness's darkest hour. It is a kiss of death as Jesus leads the crowd against Jesus Matthew chapter 26, verse 48 says, He who was betraying Jesus gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. His command to seize suggests the soldiers were to be prepared to apprehend Jesus by strongly overpowering him. Seize him. It appears that virtually everyone except Jesus is anticipating a physical confrontation on this night. Certainly his disciples do. The kiss fascinates me. It does. I think it fascinates everyone. Why a kiss? Why did Judas kiss Christ? Even Jesus himself responds with a question, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? You know, we, we all know that a kiss is a sign of affection. It was in that day. In fact, the Greek word that we translate uh, Philadelphia, uh, the Greek word phileo, uh, which means to love, also meant to kiss. To love was to kiss. And, and the greeting was more meaningful in that day than our modern handshake is today. It implied an intimate level of friendship. If you're going to go up and kiss someone. Seems pretty uh, straightforward and uh, easy for us to understand. If you're going to go up and kiss someone, you have an intimacy beyond a casual relationship. Judas, he occupied Jesus' innermost circle, the most trusted circle of friends. There were 12 of them. None had greater access to Christ. None had spent more time with him. He was privileged to witness God's power 
the miracles that are displayed through Jesus. And, and through all this time, through this period of three years, roughly almost three years, Judas had performed the part flawlessly. Flawlessly. If you recall, John 13 verse 22 suggests that none of the other disciples, none of them suspected Judas as the betrayer. When Christ stated at the Last Supper, one of you will betray me, it also adds that the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which of them he was speaking. They had no idea. They could not see it. Boy, Judas could really act Christian. He could really do it. He played the part so well, over time they had placed him in charge of the the church treasury. He was trusted. Trusted by all of them. You know, Judas is not entirely unique, folks. There are many who have played the part. Played the part of following Jesus for so long. uh, Some no longer even realize that they're acting. You know, throughout the book of Acts... Many are seen, some even listed by name in the epistles of John and Paul. Undoubtedly, those who had infiltrated the church through many acts of piety. You know, should not this perfume have been given to the poor? But Judas could have won an Oscar. He could really act. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus predicted, Uh, depicts those who falsely profess Christ as being many. There are many. And of those many, Jesus suggests there are many that don't even recognize that they themselves are actors. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Many will say to me in that day, that is in the day of the Lord, the day the Lord returns, many will say in that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, says the Lord, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They are many. They are many. Folks, is the human heart, is the human heart sufficiently deceitful? That you could deceive yourself into living a complete lie for years? Think of false churches. They are many. Ones that don't, that no longer hold to the orthodox teaching of the Christian faith. We were talking about that this morning in uh, membership orientation. And those things that are taught in the, in the scriptures that the church has believed from the very beginning. Many have departed from that faith. Many believe that they are still uh, followers of Christ. Yet they don't believe that He is the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. The heart is is deceitful above all things, says Jeremiah. Who can fathom it? Who can understand it? Here's why I think Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. See if you think this has merit. I think Judas had feigned affection for Jesus for so long, faked it, 
for so long on this night when he went to him face to face, he could no longer break character. He couldn't do anything but maintain that same fake allegiance to Christ that he always faked. Uh, for three years, every time that Judas had entered the presence of Christ, he, he reached out, embraced him, kissed him. But whatever appeared to everyone who saw Judas as a, a brother kissing Jesus in love uh, was actually a kiss of death. It was a kiss of death. All that deadness inside of Judas rising up to kiss Jesus. You know, Judas looked like he was alive on the outside. Everybody trusted him. But on the inside, he was full of dead man's bones. He was dead. Doubly dead. Friends, we have to be careful as Christians to not so mechanically indoctrinate ourselves with, with truths and good things that we do repetitiously over and over again. We have to be careful not to indoctrinate ourselves with religious habits. But when Jesus comes, only receive the award for best actor. We don't want to do that. We don't want our family to end up like that. You don't want to win an Oscar for playing Judas Iscariot, folks. We must have a faith in Christ the Christ who saves us from our sins. Verse 49. When the disciples who were around Jesus saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. More power. More power. You'd have to think that Judas, expecting a confrontation uh, of uh, a physical confrontation to see Jesus kneel down and pick up that ear and put it back on, you would think that by that time Judas would be getting pretty, pretty nervous about how things are going to go down. As we observed earlier, we can expect those spiritual forces of darkness, they will team up with secular forces, powers of government against Christ and His kingdom, uh, now that it has occurred, that they have all come for Him, Jesus' disciples, well, they decide that they are going to fight this spiritual battle with physical weapons. Each of them said, Lord. Peter grabbed one, grabbed a sword, but all of them said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? You know, and fortunately for us, the Gospel of, of John reveals to us who's ultimately in control here, where the power is. As the soldiers seek to validate that identity of Jesus, uh, He was revealed to them as the great I Am in great power uh, while saying to them the very name of God. Scripture records at that point the officer is even falling back at the presence of Christ and the name of God falling to the ground. I think it must have been then that Peter might have thought he had the upper hand. He grabbed that sword and he's like, all right, we got them on their heels. And he, and he lashed out. He must have said, you know, this is my cue. We got them backing up. 
let's go for it. And having a sword, John 18 says that Peter drew it and he struck the high priest's slave and, and cut off his right ear. I guess he wasn't a very good shot. Then when Jesus says, put the sword away into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Jesus says, no more of this. No more. Two weeks ago, we discussed how spiritual battles are never won with physical violence. Can never be won. You know, Jesus could have easily turned to Peter and the others and said, When have you ever seen me respond this way? Of all the healings that they had seen Christ do, healing the leper, raising the dead, casting out demons, calming the storm, Jesus could have said, When have you ever seen me act this way? Taking a sword and lashing out. I I fail to identify a single occasion where Jesus ever used God's power to strike out or to injure anybody. He wouldn't have, because it is impossible to advance the kingdom of God with physical violence. Folks, it is impossible to advance the kingdom of God with violence. God promised Zerubbabel that his temple would be built not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God of hosts. Our our spiritual armor, we see that in Ephesians chapter 6, our spiritual armor is designed for spiritual battle. Our only offensive weapon is forged not in steel, it's forged in the Spirit of God. Ephesians 6 tells us that it is the very Word of God. You're probably familiar with that passage. And writing from prison, uh, from prison, Paul explains the spiritual armor that we are to take up and the sword of the Spirit which we are to wield. And afterward, he leaves these basic commands. Just basic commands for battle. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray. Three times now already he said pray. Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me at the opening of my mouth to make known the boldness of the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains in that proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Those are Paul's instructions for spiritual battle. This is is what I'd like you to notice about our passage from Luke. Spiritual warfare often turns physical. And when it does, we lose. We lose the physical battle. Jesus is bound and carried away. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, is stoned. James is beheaded. All but one of the apostles are eventually martyred. 
There are times that Christians may turn to flee. The Apostle Paul was lowered down a wall in a basket to get away at one point. But when spiritual battle descends into physical violence, we virtually always end up at the short end of the stick. That's spiritual battle. As I stated on a previous Sunday... God does not demand that we always roll over and become passive victims to random violence. The right to self-defense is a principle broadly extended from Scripture. We can serve in our nation's military. We can become a police officer. Christians make the best police officers. But when it comes to spiritual confrontation, folks, the only weapon that we are to wield is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. Our instructions from Paul during the course of spiritual warfare are prayer, petition, perseverance, and proclamation. Those are our instructions for battle. When it comes to church martyrs, whether it was John Wycliffe or um, um, William Tyndale or John Huss, or Polycarp in the early church, those who died for the faith, even uh, Nate Saint and Jim Elliot, when it comes to spiritual warfare, the only sword that the martyrs are left clinching is the Bible. Jesus here didn't need any of Peter's help. In Matthew 26, he assured that he could have called down 12 legions of angels. They would have defended Jesus if he so desired. If you recall that story from 2 Kings chapter 19, just one angel wiped out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. Just one angel. And, And by the way, that angel was dispatched in response to the prayer of Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah, when Jerusalem was surrounded, Hezekiah prayed. Prayer was his weapon of choice. That's what I have to ask, folks. Is it ours? That's the question. Is prayer our weapon of choice? Is the Bible where we turn? Because I do become suspicious knowing the flesh, having lived in it now for all my life. Sometimes I find it suspicious it would be easier to muster 25 men to bear arms than it would be to gather five men together to pray. Is it any wonder that America is in the state that we're in? It's a horrible state. Do you believe the remedy is guns? Or is the solution that God would like us to seek prayer and petition, uh, perseverance and proclamation, which would Jesus ask us to bear? You know, this is tough because what we are witnessing in America very emotional for all of us. 
But it is a spiritual battle that is turning physical, folks. It's a spiritual battle that we have been refraining from taking the Word of God in prayer to for decades, and now it is turning physical. It's turning physical. You know, many have never been told. Many uh, have never had a father teach them. Many of the looters have never had a father teach them that thou shalt not covet your neighbor's stuff. Do not covet. Many have never been told, you shall not murder. Probably the vast majority of those who would riot and take up the sword have never had a father in the home who refuses to model adultery and lust and pornography. A large number of children in America now are born out of fornication, born out of wedlock, no father in the house to teach them, a mother doing all that she can to hold the household together without a father present. And what we are seeing is a spiritual battle. This is spiritual warfare. I think I shared recently on a Wednesday evening, um, I, I don't think it was from the pulpit, so I will share it again. I'm going to have to declare again how grateful I am to have had a father who taught me principles from Romans 13, though he would have had trouble finding Romans 13. But he taught me, do not resist governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist, or which exist, are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. You know, my dad taught us six kids. You never, ever mess with the badge. Never. You never fight. You do not resist. It is yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. I was not born a Christian. I've also never been an axe murderer, so don't let your imagination run away with this now, okay? Don't let your imagination turn graphic. But as I did have, as a young unbeliever, a small number of encounters with the boys in blue, perhaps you have as well, no offense, Gigi, but there were no ladies usually involved. Girls in blue, too. But I cannot express the number of times when before knowing Christ as Savior, this simple principle, this simple principle that my dad taught me, respect authority. The number of times that it saved me grief. I never fought against authority. I, I say this mostly and genuinely for our young folks today. Mostly, because some of us older folks need to hear it as well. I say this for our young folks today, so I want to ask, are you listening? Are you seeing Peter in this passage and how he responds and Jesus' correction? We must listen because years later, after long after Christ had saved me from my sins, I applied 
as pastor for this church. The call committee wisely chose, as they always should, to pay extra for the double throwdown background check. You know, not just the $10 one for if you're going to, you know, to find things that are recent on your record or electronically uh, captured somewhere, but the double throwdown background check. Al Fernandez administrated that. He's spent a career in HR, so they delegated to him to, to, uh, dele- uh, to take up that task. Al has seen it all working in HR. He's seen it all and then some. He said it's very rare today to find anybody who doesn't have at least some blemish on their record. Al told the committee, I learned this all later, uh, I can't believe it, this guy doesn't have anything on his record. There's not even a blip on the radar. He is spotless. Fortunately, since that time six years ago, I still remain that way today. (laughs) Folks, I attribute my criminal record, my lack of it, not to my inherent goodness, not that I am particularly uh, holy, nor that I was before I was a Christian, I attribute it entirely to God's grace. Entirely God's grace. God in His mercy and grace, listen up fathers, God in His mercy and grace gave me a father who taught me right from wrong and taught me do not resist authority. And the boys in blue, the girls too, when they observed, when they encountered a yielded, a contrite spirit in me, every time, every single time, the police always showed me mercy. Mercy. Folks, we have got to start teaching our children to act like Christ and not like Peter. Here's what we can be assured. When the authorities come with swords and clubs, God has not lost control. He could dispatch those same angels if He wanted to. Our command from Christ is to put our swords away. Put the sword away, Peter. And if we want to win the spiritual battle that is confronting our country, a nation now fully engulfed in sin. This nation is fully engulfed in sin and it isn't, it isn't just in the inner cities. It isn't just among one people group or another. This nation is engulfed in sin. If we want to win that battle, it's only going to be done with prayer with petition, with persistence, and with proclamation of the gospel. That's the only way. Put the sword back into its sheath, Peter. Instead, choose a, whip, a weapon that will win. Let's choose the weapons that win. <laughs>